Gene Sachs sat down with moderator David Diamond for a one-on-one interview in June of 1995. I'm Hope Clark, a member of the Society of Stage Directors and Choreographers, and this is Masters of the Stage. This program is produced and presented by the Stage Directors and Choreographers Foundation in collaboration with the American Theatre Wing. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Stage Directors and Choreographers Foundation's one-on-one conversation with Gene Sachs. I'm David Diamond, Executive Director of the Stage Directors and Choreographers Foundation, and I'm glad to see you all here this afternoon. I just wanted to say that I'm really proud and pleased and happy to have as our guest this afternoon, Gene Sachs. Thank you. <laughs> and when you began uh, your career in the theater, was as an actor. Yes. What made you go into directing? <clears throat> uh, people urged me to. So that might, might seem... Uh, maybe they wanted to get me out of acting. <laughs> but, uh, I used to... Uh, you know, I always feel this. I'll preface it by saying I feel that actors do a hell of a lot of direct uh, any any play any, any uh, movie that I've been associated with uh, always has people are always telling other people how to do the part uh, the, the, you know actors most of the time the director doesn't seem to have enough Time or patience or knowledge uh, of acting to really be helpful to other to the actors, and I, I can't help feeling that also there's a psychological problem here where the actor automatically feels a kinship to his fellow actor, and <clears throat> that the director is an enemy automatically. It's a little like uh, uh, children with their father or mother. I mean, they would the children, the brothers and sisters, are more intimate with each other than they can be with the father. They say uh, they they tell secrets to each other they wouldn't tell the father. And I think, without getting too psychological about it, that they have this. And uh, the director is the father, and the actors are the children, and the brother, the siblings. And there's a kinship among actors. You know, they go out for a drink after. They go out for lunch together. They, while their scene is not being done, they sit in each other's dressing rooms or in the corner of the rehearsal hall and watch. And they're always watching. <laughs> they, you can't do anything that doesn't get by them. And it's always, you see what he did? Why is he having her do that? Is that the way you were as an actor, always watching the director? Uh, oh yeah, I was. But I was, I was also... So, so worried about myself 
that I didn't always have the time to do that. But uh, so did you I think that that I would always have the I would always get upset that the director didn't see something that seemed to me to be very clear. I mean, I said, to myself, doesn't he see that when he gets up in the morning, when that the, the character gets up in the morning, that his hair is, shouldn't be combed, that she can't go to bed and, and wake up with in full makeup. <laughs> and those things bothered me. And, and uh, when actors came to me and said, "Well, what do you think? You think I'm? How do you think I am in the part?" They would never approach it quite that way. But, uh, uh, and I would say, why don't you try this? Or why don't you try that? And sometimes I went to other actors that I trusted and I said, what's wrong with this phone conversation? That I'm, 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 you know, what's wrong with it? I can't seem to remember the lines. And, so, and the other person might say to me, I don't think there's anyone else, I don't think there's anyone on the other end of the phone. And we'll say, oh, right. And they thought, well, the director doesn't, often doesn't have the time, or uh, he has so many pressures, he has so many other things to worry about, that in a way he can't give acting lessons. And acting lessons are often necessary. When I say acting lessons, the the point of view of the actor, the uh, the technique of acting, should always ideally be with the director. He should be putting himself into that part as he's watching, and he should see that. Wait a minute, you're not talking. There's no one on the other end of the phone. He, he should really see that, but I think many times directors are not actors. They come from other fields, from other departments. That that, and I think especially today, they're often so interested in <clears throat> the look of the production that that's their main concern. I don't mean to condemn directors that way. I, it, it's when you're directing, um, do you encourage the actors to give each other notes? No, I don't. <laughs> I, 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 uh, I, I would be upset by that. I am upset by that. Because I don't think they give as good notes as I do. And I don't think they often know what they're talking about. Because I think everybody wants to direct. That's one of the problems of our of our times, is this, the joke goes uh, about uh, Mother Teresa who asks God for the one thing. God says, "What is the one thing you want to do that you want me that you want?" And she says, "I'd like to direct." <laughs> and I think that uh, I think that's one of the things that that. See, it doesn't. There doesn't seem to be any particular skill to direct. I mean, it's not like an artist has to paint a picture, and he has to, and a composer has to write a song, has to know how to write notes. So he doesn't even have to write notes, but he has to be able to hum it. Anyway. 
but he has to be able to turn out something tangible. The director, I think, everybody thinks that they could direct. Everybody know first knows how to cast. That's that's the first thing the director has to do, right? So they say, well, I can cast that. You know, you know who should play that part. And indeed, how many times have you heard people on the bus saying that? You know, he's not right for that part. And indeed, it, it, the, the did, you, did you learn directing just by doing it, or did you learn from somebody? I didn't, I didn't learn from. I, I uh, tell you, I, all right. Here's how I start. I uh, was an actor, and I would be helpful. I thought and they saw two actors in the shows that I was in. And uh, one day somebody said, well, oh, let's do something at the actor's studio. There was a, there was a, a one-act play by Calvino, Italo Calvino, who's uh, dead, famous Italian novelist, who was over here in a Ford brand. I had seen... Uh, at Spoleto, Italy, I was in uh, in the festival. It was 1959, some one of those years. That uh, and Calvino had a, a one act play, more a sketch, really, uh, in the festival in Italian, and uh, it was uh, very funny even though it was an attack, because it was an antic farce about a prostitute in Naples who uh, at, uh, was with her husband. Her husband was in bed with her. Uh, her first customer came. The husband got out of the bed and slept on, uh, by the foot of the bed. And the, the uh, customer was uh, a thief. And uh, they smoked cigarettes all through, and uh, there was a knock on the door, and it was a policeman. And he was also a customer. The thief went into the bathroom, the policeman came, lay in bed, and he said, have you seen so-and-so? And I'm talking about this particular thief, she said, no, it wasn't. So he went, they, they, they made love and then fell asleep. And she didn't fall asleep, but he did. And the husband was at the foot of the bed, and the thief was in the in the uh, bathroom. The thief comes out of the bathroom and pantomimes to her, "I want a cigarette." And the cigarettes are on the side of the bed, and she tries to reach them, she can't reach, them. and she finally gives up. The thief goes back. He comes out later can't stand it. He has to have a smoke. And he reaches across, wakes up the policeman. Policeman sees who it is, chases him, and he's caught. And he, he says it's worth it. Because I had to have a cigarette. So that was, that was more or less... Then they finally left, and the husband came back to bed. And they that was more or less... The, the story of this thing. And I wanted to do a part in it, but they said, why'd you direct it? 
So I got other people to do it, and I directed it. And it was the first comedy that had ever been done at the Actors Studio. <laughs> so, yes. Uh, I, met, I met Calvino, and he was attending classes on the Ford Grant, and he was attending the studio. And he had very broken English, and I had barely a, a few words of Italian. And we together translated it roughly. But it being so much an antic farce that did not depend on dialogue, that um, it was understandable even with a very rough translation. And out of that, uh, Mort Gottlieb, who was a, uh, was a well-known producer around town, still is around, uh, said, you know, he was a general manager at that time, and he said, I'm going to do a show one day, uh, and uh, a comedy, and you're going to direct it. And I said, good, I agree. <laughs> so I forgot about it. He, he, months later, he came up with a play, and I read it, and it was terrible. And I thought, what do I do? And I tell him, I'll do it. Uh, and I thought, and I thought, I don't know what to do. I, I don't think I can do it. Because I think it's just not any good. So I, I went through hell trying to decide how I should tell him this. Uh, here was my big chance to direct something. And uh, I said, more finally, I said, I, I can't do it because I, I don't think it's very good. I don't think it's good enough. The question being I just don't think it's good to be done. And he said, That's okay, we'll find another one. Oh, so he was probably picking my brain. Uh, so he discarded it without another word. He probably had discarded it before I even asked him. And then one day he came to me with a play called Enter Laughing. And uh, Joe Stein had written it, and Mort said, I, we want you to direct it. I talked to Joe about it. I was in A Thousand Clowns at the time, and uh, Joe Stein met with me and with Mort, and Joe said, you know, I, I said, how did you come to want me to do this? And Joe said, I think anybody who's a, as good a comic actor as you are, would be able to do this. And so I, I think you should. <clears throat> and uh, I was perfect. I was uh, very grateful for that, but I, I, it made sense to me. And that, I'll tell you why I wanted to do that. I thought I was, I knew it wasn't a great play. I, you know, great plays don't come along. They just don't. I mean, I'm not, you know, I, Getting death of a salesman offered to you. I don't know what the chances must be. Probably a hundred thousand to one. Uh, they're just not written every day, or even every ten years. So, Enter Laughing had a couple of scenes in it that made me laugh when I read it. When I read it, it tickled me, and I said to myself. 
Oh, I know how to do that. I know how that should be. I can see that. I can see myself directing. I can see myself acting. And that was the kind of kernel, which it was enough. I wasn't in it. I directed. It was my first directing job. Alan Arkett was the, was the, the main character. And we had a lot of... We had Vivian Blaine and Sylvia Sidney, who was all wrong for it, but... Morton needed names, he said. Alan Mowbray, who was wonderful in it, but uh, was drunk all the time. But it didn't matter. Uh, and, and Irving Jacobson was his first uh, English-speaking part. He, he was a Yiddish actor who had, done, who had been on Second Avenue all his life. Although he had been born in this country, he never spoke, never but uh, he was in it too and Michael J. Pollard was in it and uh, Alan Arkin who was a wonderful thing anyway uh, that was a success and it was my first play and I was it, it was, I won't say it was easy but it wasn't it wasn't very hard either well, since that time you directed some of the most successful comedies on Broadway what, let's talk a little bit about directing comedy. What What is the um, technique to it? What is the process? I, I wouldn't I wouldn't say I directed any way any different any differently than I direct anything else. I mean, I try to I try to make it believable. I try to just as playing a comic part. I try to do it the way I I think it should be. The way I. I the way I see it now, if I see things in a in a comic way, that's probably true. I mean, I'm sure that that uh, other directors see things not so comically, but that's the person they are. But I mean, you don't. I don't think you try to be funny. I think that's the most deadly thing one can do. Uh, you try to make it real, you try to believe it, you try to make it plausible. Uh, the broadest thoughts, the, the, you try somehow to make it plausible. That's what I do. I mean, I know no other way. Uh, how, how would you characterize your process in rehearsals? Do you... Uh, do you stay with the script very closely? Do you do improvisation with the actors? No, I, 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 I never trusted improvisation. Uh, because, I don't know really why, it, it never seems to accomplish anything for me. I think that if you can't do the script with what you have as, as, as the script, then don't do it. I mean, uh, there was always a thing when I was at the actor's studio as an actor, the actors took great delight in changing everyone. They were great at rewriting. And, the, and I think the movies, in, in the movies, actors do that a lot. Because in the movies, the script, the writer, uh, occupies a much lonely 
much more lowly station than the director or the actors. And, they, and the, the directors and the actors get together often. Oh, let's cut that. Let's. We don't need that. We don't need this. Or he wouldn't say it that way. It's so stupid. Let's do it this way. This is what he'd say. And that, you know, sometimes they're right, but most of the time I think they're wrong. And uh, the, the writer could could say it better. Uh, but I, I, I think that the, the script. I've always learned that my process of, of work is always based on the fact that take what you're given and make that work. Now, sometimes I've gone, uh, I, I've been at fault to do that because sometimes you can't put that round peg in a square hole, square peg in a round hole. So, so when you're working on a new play, for example, um, is the playwright involved in rehearsals? Are there rewrites going on? Do you recommend things? In a new play, I've never done, I've done it without the playwright. So the playwright is always there. <coughs> uh, with every play I've done. And, uh, I, I, I mean, and they have, first of all, in the theater, you know, a right to the drama skill not to change a word if they don't want to. Right. I did a play called Generation some years ago with Henry Fonda. I, I sent it to him. It was by a first-time playwright named William Goodhart, who I don't think has written anything since then. But uh, Fonda tried to get him to change some things, and he was very stubborn about it and wouldn't do it, wouldn't change. Finally wound up having a fist fight with the producer. Actually, the producer tried to uh, punch him. Who was having a fist fight? The, the author. Yeah. Yes. The producer said, you must change it, you must change this. And he said, I will, I won't. And he said, you will. And they first grabbed him by the shirt and they were punching each other. But, uh, Fonda, I remember, at one point, jumped up in the air in fury and, and, and landed on the... Was a, and I thought he was going to go through the floor. Which was in New Haven, and it was a, a covered-over orchestra pit. boarded over, and he jumped up, his knees were up to his chin, and, and the whole thing shook. And he said... This is the last time I do a first play. <laughs> <laughs> Never again. Never again. And he's so furious with his writer. Well, I think the writer was absolutely wrong. I mean, are the writers, are most writers more agreeable than amenable to change in the rehearsal process? Uh, most are not, I find. Although there are some, I mean, there's no rule. Uh, Simon, Neil Simon, I think is reasonable, but uh, because of his huge success, actors were loath to ask him. I want to say, can I change this line? I mean, it was always very touchy subject. Uh, because generally he 
whatever his faults may be, and usually not in the dialogue he wrote, or nor in the way a character said something. Uh, he, he said it better than most of the actors that I know could say it. Um, there are other writers who uh, are much more, are very reasonable about it. But overall, I would say that the writers are pretty adamant about sticking to what they wrote. I mean, after all, that's what they have. That's it's like telling an actor, don't do it that way, when that's the actor's stopping train. It's very, you're taking something away from him that he depends on, that he thinks is all he has. But isn't the rehearsal process sort of a discovery for everybody of what works, what doesn't, what things need to go, what things should go in? I mean, um, Ideally, I, it is, yes, but how many ideal situations are there? If the play is working, everybody's pretty happy. If the play isn't working, everybody's pretty miserable. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> there are a lot of attacks and cross attacks and, and a lot of uh, blame. Has to, blame has to be assigned. Otherwise, we just, what you um, also directed some musical comedy, mm -hmm. and what was, was the process like there? Um, was it very different, or did you pretty much stick to the same way you worked on plays? Well, yeah, I think it's the same way. But I mean, the same question might be written, might be. Uh, I, I, let me put it this way. It's still a story. Uh, a story is a story, and I think the director's job is to tell the story. And I think that his, when he comes to a song, uh, he has to guide the way it's done, even though it's done in dance uh, or, or by the most skilled singer, he still has to... Uh, He has to direct it and make it part of the story. Justify it and make it seem to come out of the situation. Uh, although we know how silly it is if somebody suddenly starts to sing. It's, you know, how do they do that? I, I'll now tell you a story that I think is a good one about <clears throat> what is a song cue? When does a character start to sing? And this was told to me by Herb Gardner, who wrote a musical with uh, Julie Stein. And uh, uh, Herb wrote the lyrics. And it was a show that closed before it opened. It, it had one or two previews, and they closed it. It was called One Night Stand. <laughs> and uh, he said, Julie, I still don't understand when, what a song cue is. When, when are you supposed to have a song? And Julie said, I'll tell you, I'll tell you. I was working on a joint in doing Prohibition in Chicago. Uh, uh, drums, I played the piano and it was drums and a bass. 
and uh, we played uh, 20 minutes on, 20 minutes off, and it was a Chinese restaurant. And uh, we're playing, and we quit, and uh, uh, we're on our break, and a guy comes up to me and says, uh, play Rhapsody in Blue. I said, Rhapsody in Blue? That's 40 minutes. Who the hell are you to tell me to play Rhapsody in Blue? The guy said, Al Capone's. Bom, 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 bom. <laughs> he said, that's a song. <laughs> but that, uh, it's a little extreme as a definition, but yeah, it's, it's certainly motivated, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> then the, uh, so uh, I, I think, though, that you directed the same, but I, I think that what comes into play here is the same thing that comes into play by a book writer, which is that the musical numbers are really the most important scene. But they're seen. Just as the dialogue scenes are scenes. And so the book writer must develop a shorthand uh, and you cannot squander too much time on the book, on the play. The main brunt of the emotional uh, life of the piece is the music. And so the book writer has a kind of subservient role in a way. I shouldn't say that. That's really wrong because the book writer is responsible for your whole story. Uh, a lot more changes take place in rehearsal during the musical, is that right? I mean, with the well, it's all com it's 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 all uh, yes. I mean, it, it's it it's compiled. It's it's uh, um, compounded. It's all compounded by the fact that. Everything uh, is uh, involved. Uh, you want to change music, you immediately have to go to the uh, people who do the scores. And it takes a couple of, because the orchestra's involved. Mm -hmm. So to, to rescore something takes several days while these copyists labor over these scores like medieval monks. And, you know, and it takes them couple of days. I don't, I don't know, maybe now they have a process that uh, you would think so, that uh, they could do it by computer or digital in some way, but I know that the unions would never stand for that. The, the, the copyists union, the musicians union, everybody else. Um, so everything is a little like uh, planning a uh, a military operation in that the food has to be brought up from, you know, from behind the lines and the, the uh, hospital tent and the, everything else has to be it, it's a big operation and it's a costly one and uh, one of the best lines I ever heard was that somebody said a good punishment for Hitler would be a 
and be put in charge of a musical and trouble out of town. <laughs> so that well, let's take an example uh, like uh, Maine when that was out of town. Did a lot of changes take place? No, very little. Yeah. Amazing. I don't know what makes these things so different. And, and this part of the mystery and part of the uh, uh, the beauty of the, our business is that Maine from the moment, well, let me tell you, first of all, when I was offered that, I said, wait a minute, wasn't that a musical? Annie Maine, because I, I automatically thought it was a musical. It was with uh, Rosalind Russell, and it was, but it was, you see, it was uh, small scenes, pieced together, it, it taken from a novel, uh, and uh, sort of pasted together into a, a story. And... It's kind of stylized. Like it's stylized. It's... Uh, and the character was stylized. The character was bigger than life and, and uh, could easily be musicalized. <clears throat> so I said, wasn't that a musical? I said, no, no, no. The, I said, yes, okay. And... Uh, I like the story, I like the character, and it was going to be a very expensive show and sounded very, uh, like a lot of fun. And then we cast it, and we cast Angelo Lansbury, which was a rather strange choice, but it was an interesting choice, in that it wasn't like Rosalind Russell, and it wasn't like any cliche idea of what that character might be. Uh, Tallulah Bankhead or somebody, or, or even Betty Davis. Uh, in the style of Angela, Angela was uh, totally different from those people. She had only done one musical before that. Right? She had only one done, yes. Yes, yes. But she was a determined worker and very good. I mean, she worked so hard on the dancing and on her voice and improved it and improved it all, all along. And so finally, uh, we did, and from the time we started it, there never seemed to be anything going wrong. Uh, we went out of town <clears throat> to Philadelphia, and I went to, it was on a Sunday, and I saw this, the theater, there was a line halfway around the bar of people buying tickets, and I thought, why? And they heard the rehearsals are good, that things have been going well in rehearsal. No, they haven't. It's just an appeal. I don't know whether it was the name, name, or the combination with Angela Lansbury. She wasn't a very big star at that point. But it, it was doing business right away. Then we opened. And the we, we had our first performance, and the the main number was at the end of the first act, which wasn't in original until very close to the first day of rehearsal, when we decided we needed a big first act ending, and Jerry Herman then wrote Maine, you know, like that, I and mean, within a day. And uh, 
So we, we had our first audience, and they went wild at that night. And the first act was they were, there was an applause for oh, I don't know, three or four weeks in the first act. And, uh, and the, no, the second act was, was pretty good too. There was the need for one more number in the second act that you couldn't quite uh, think of at the time, but in, in about a week or two weeks, Jerry Herman came up with another number, which. Uh, which one? Um, that's how young I feel, which you probably never heard of. You, but you, because you're probably a musical parent in Boston. It wasn't a very good number, but it was serviceable. It was fun, and it, and it worked. Mm. But I must say, you know, Arthur Lawrence was there at the first, at the first uh, performance. It was before we opened. The first preview. And he came rushing up the aisle and signaled me that he wanted to say something. And he went out to the lobby. This was after this three or four minute ovation at the end of the first day. And he said, Listen, the music is at war with the book. <laughs> I said, Really? <laughs> well, you may have a point there. <laughs> and well, we went no further with that discussion because I, I don't know what was in his mind, <laughs> but he was a, a, he was trying to be helpful. He really was. No, so, it didn't, so it didn't go through much change. No, it went through very little change, and I and I just thought, isn't this wonderful? It can be just wonderful. After that, I did several musicals, which didn't come into town. So, uh, I, I, you know, kind of, I did a, I did one musical where we took the song, and the, the, what we thought was the best song, and kept moving it around, trying to find the right spot for it. We wound up doing it first, <laughs> so that nobody would leave. <laughs> Uh, and it was just the show just would never work. And I, I can't, I can't tell you to this day why it just didn't work. People hate it. Well, it was an anti-heroine. It was a, a, for one thing, and the audience hated that character. It was a, a, a mother's kisses by Bruce J. Friedman. I don't know if you knew that novel. But it was about his mother, and she was a, a kind of uh, terrible character. She was a, a very funny, terrible character. But uh, they wouldn't accept her. So no matter what you did, you could never get out. It was really a black comedy, and the audience was not ready for it. And I, I must say, I, I think that we probably didn't do it very well. We didn't get through it. What do you think about the musicals that are on Broadway now? Sung through musicals with very little book, 
Mm-hmm. Um, I don't like uh, I like a story. Uh, I like to be involved with a character. If, if I can't be involved with a character uh, and root for him and be emotionally uh, involved, I really don't care about No matter how dazzling the entertainment might be. Well, it does to me, yeah. But that's... I, I, obviously, everybody doesn't feel that. But you know what I think about when I see these musicals like Miss Saigon and... and, uh, and I mean, God knows, that's like a soap opera. I mean, you should feel for those people. But I did. Uh, because I felt very manipulated. But... Uh, the, the big... The big musicals with with all the with the staircases and the moving parts. I think about <clears throat> drawings I've seen in, in books by people like Stuart Cheney, uh, the, the designer who had written histories of the theater, uh, replete with <clears throat> drawings and diagrams of the theaters of Europe, of the great opera houses of Europe and their mechanical backstages of, of the uh, 19th century with all the mechanical things, these marvelous mechanical uh, giant devices to do all kinds of, of stage tricks with the, you know, from uh, Oh, all mechanical, and, and today it would be very dated because we we do it in, in many other ways. We do it by computer, we do the whole lighting in different ways. But they had machinery that dwarfs anything that we ever thought of. Uh, and, you know, swans would appear and fly over and, and uh, horses and there were spectacles. And spectacle was the style of the day. And it goes in cycles. And then today we are going through the period of spectacle, which I think is declining. I think. I don't know. So far, I mean, the houses still have to crumble at the end. Uh, and uh, I, they don't have to crumble for me, but. Um, evidently, the, unless the audience gets wet from the rain and, <laughs> and uh, uh, feels part of the of the industrial revolution, they are happy. I think that that's it's all cover up for lack of a show, lack of a show. Um, a lot of directors, uh, stage directors, uh, these days are moving into film because they can't find enough work doing stage work. Um, can you talk a little bit about your transition? What was the first film you directed? Barefoot in the Park. And, and that came because you were directing the play? Well, I, yeah. Uh, I had 
been directing plays for a few years, and I'd had some success in it. And uh, I'd never directed a play of Neil Simon's, but this was his, this was not his first picture, his second picture. The first picture of his was uh, Come Blow Your Horn. <clears throat> but this was the second, and this was the, the first picture of, of any one of his big hits. And uh, I got a call from uh, from uh, Hal Wallace in Hollywood who said, how would you like to direct Barefoot in the Park? And I said, oh, I think I'd like that. He said, well, Neil Simon wants you, he's, you're his first choice to do. And I said, fine, I wonder. I didn't know Neil very well then. Uh, and I'd never done a plan for him that time. So I, I said, yes, I'd, I'd really be interested in doing it. He said, well, why don't you come out to, we made a date to come out to Hollywood. And it was like on a, on a, on a Thursday that he called me. Uh, this is how well I said, okay, well, I'll see you Monday. What do you want for lunch? <laughs> and I said, gee, I don't know. <laughs> uh, anything. He said, no, well, tell me what you want because uh, I, I don't want to know so I can order. <laughs> well, uh, what are you going to have? <laughs> he said, I always have the same thing steak. Steak and, and, and uh, baked potato. I said, that's fine. Great. So he said, how do you want it? <laughs> I said, medium rare. All right, see you Monday at 12 o'clock in my office for lunch. <laughs> I got a taste of what Hollywood was really like, at least in that period in Hollywood. He was a great producer. What was the experience of directing a film compared to working on set? Well, it's frightening. It was frightening, and I, I had never done a film, and I, I remember going to, uh, to uh, Hollywood, and I was at the Beverly Wilshire Hotel, and uh, <laughs> it was, uh, I got there in the afternoon and walked around a bit, it's the one hotel that's in town, you can walk around without having a car, and I thought, Jesus, I don't know much about Directing the film, I get better. Start learning. So we were going to film in a couple of days. <laughs> so I walked around to a bookshop and I looked at uh, Antoni Antonioni. I said that looks interesting, and I took his book out, and uh, he had a book on on directing. <laughs> So I went through it, then went to the back of the hotel and started reading it. <laughs> and he's talked about how the first day he came on the set early, and he looked, he said, uh, he looked around at the room that he was going to do the scene in, and he started arranging the furniture. So, started playing the furniture. And set it up, he said, he set up the room like he would his own apartment. In other words, if he were moving into a, into a space, and he had some pieces of furniture there, 
uh, from his old apartment. He would arrange them. Well, I think I'll put the couch here. And I'll put the chair here. And, well, I'm the light over the window. So, you know, it, and I thought, that's pretty good. I guess I'll take heart. He seems to have an approach that isn't too scientific. It's all from what you do in life. So, uh, appropriate prepare for the apartment they're moving into an apartment. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I had a very good uh, cinematographer who was extremely uh, <clears throat> um, experienced. We've done so many pictures. Do you find yourself directing the actors more than the camera? Yes. Yeah, that's what you, that was your experience. Yes. And that was fine, because that's what needed it. I mean, it's that kind of picture. Uh, I wasn't really dying on it. Right. But, and I wouldn't know how to do that. Even if I learned, I don't think I'd be interested in, in knowing how to make that explosion look great. Robert Redford came from the stage, but Jane Fonda was a film actor or something, right? I mean, well, she had been on the stage. She had been in the actor studios in her time. She wasn't very skilled, but, uh, and, and really uh, had much comic experience. And Redford was not a comic actor either. I mean, uh, he, he played that role. He played the role on the stage, yes. And very well, and he played very well in the picture. And uh, but I don't, I don't think he ever really liked it very much. Was the uh, process of directing acting for film um, very different? I mean, did the actors, or did you have to tone, you tone them down, or make them? Yeah, I, I mean, if they were used to performing on stage. Uh, some of the actors, yes, but they weren't necessarily because they were performing on stage. There's certain actors, you know, the style of acting in old time movies, and when I say movies made in the 30s and 40s and 20s, the style is very big. Very, I mean, so many comic actors that were worked in, in, in the, in the uh, Warner, what they call the Warner Brothers Stock Company. Uh, People are, well, Cagney and, uh, and, and, and Pat O'Brien and uh, uh, Joan Blondell and, and oh, a whole Alan Jenkins, whole host of character actors whose faces were very familiar, were like uh, the actors in the, in the local stock company at, uh, in, in uh, wherever, uh, Westport, someplace like that who appeared a different role every week. And they did a lot of very broad stuff. And I remember working with a, 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 an actor named Fritz Fell, who was uh, in Barefoot in the Park playing a, a head waiter. And he said, that, do you want my specialty? And I said, well, what's that? He said, he looked at me like, you don't know my specialty? And he was, he said, you want my good? And I can't do it. He made a popping sound with his, with it. And I said, oh, yes, yes, very good. <laughs> I said, 
Uh, I don't know. I let's try it without it. And he said, "Fine." <laughs> but uh, he was <laughs> very broad. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but I mean, it was the style of those, of that kind of comedy of that of that day. And they all did those things. Uh, what about Kabul Sakal? You remember him? The guy who, uh, I mean, he was a, I guess, a Hungarian. He had great big jowls. And he would go, and he would, he would. I, I uh, there were so many of them that had their special that audience was uh, audiences were delighted by the wait for them to come on and do it. But that also has to do with another thing, which is the relish with which people are what people the the naivete and innocence of that day is gone. So people don't perform with that delight that they used to. Because now they are told you're wrong. You're politically incorrect and you're wrong and you're yeah and we don't believe you. And uh, I'm generalizing this, but I think that a lot of the naivete and innocence of performing has disappeared. I was delighted to see it, for instance, in Sarah Jessica Parker, when she played the dog, because she's playing the dog. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, that's kind of acting. It's, you, you can see her enjoying it. She's getting a huge kick out of it, and the audience enjoys it. And I think that's something that we seldom get an opportunity to do. We used to have it much more. Uh, it's, it's a shame that it's gone. People are afraid today to take the kind of chance to do that. And you know, on the other hand, you have somebody like Jim Carrey who... Uh, well, that's right. But you know, right. But, you know, that is framed into a uh, 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 everybody knows you're going to see that picture that's where it's going to be right. and so they accept it they say oh well it's a kid and uh, it's pretty funny but uh, well I mean Abbott and Costello and, 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 and certainly the Marx Brothers and certainly the, the uh, uh, Laurel and Hardy uh, but generally it's funny I want to um, take some time to get some uh, input from the house here. Anybody have any questions? I have. I could go on with a dozen more questions, but let's uh, let's hear what you all have to say. Yes. I have two, if I might. One is: Have you ever regretted leaving acting? I haven't left it. Still acting. I, I I just did two pictures this past year. Uh, Nobody's fool with Paul Newman. And a picture called IQ with uh, Walter Matthau, Meg Ryan, and uh, Tim Robbins, and uh, it was it was good getting back to it. A little scary, but once I got started, I lost the fear, and uh, I hope to do more. Second question: 
uh, one of the most memorable moments in did for me that I will never forget was California Suite and Tammy Grimes did that double take. I think it was right after she said, uh, how many drinks have you had? Uh, and it was the, the tip-off that there was something really wrong in the marriage. <laughs> Whose idea was it? Yours, I Bill Simons, or Tammy Grimes? I don't really remember. I'm, I'm sorry. I don't remember. It's like certain lines that were ad-libbed in certain plays, not in that one, but where people said, you know, that, that was my line. They said, I, thought, oh, I thought it was my line. Uh, I, I don't remember. You remember the moment? Yeah, yeah. But I don't remember who invented it. That's, you know, when you said that, I think it's all uh, a collaborative, isn't, isn't it the ideal state when everybody contributes? Yeah, well that's, that's a, an example of it, when everybody's imagination is working. And uh, you don't know whether it was the actor's idea, the writer's, or the director's. Yes? I know you first as an actor, you followed your career as a director, and now both of those performances you mentioned seem to have a wonderful new richness. Do you think your directing years have uh, contributed in different ways to your recent return to acting? You know? I hope so. Yeah. Or, or what did, you know, whether it's my directing or just life, living. Uh, whether you know what's responsible for that, I'm not sure. I uh, but uh, I hope I'm better. Uh, although I must say, I think some of the early times when you're in your twenties and you're unbridled, <laughs> you go with something, not knowing why or how, something marvelous comes out of your energy that is reduced as you get older. And there's nothing much we knew about that. And so something knowing too much and learning too much can uh, make, make, make those things uh, subside. That's too bad. I think it's usually something out of my life, out of my background, that, that rings a bell and, and chimes in. I say, oh, I know how that character. So, uh, and, and, and it is meaningful, and the juices begin to flow. Uh, you know, where the juices don't come, uh, it all remains dry and sort of at a distance of an arm's length. And I said, I don't know. I, 
you know, I could do this, but I don't know that I'd contribute anything meaningful from my gut. Uh, the second question was, say it again. How much would you reasonably decide, okay, I'm going to do it? Mm. How much do I do before? Yeah, how, I mean, how much of it is mental and how much of it is actual written out or either one and then you just either discard or use it or start it before you start waiting for rehearsals to really discover I think most of it is, it just goes in a cooker. I mean, I, 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 I think about it a lot, but I often don't come up with any any solutions. Uh, I talk to the writer as much as I can, to the producer, to, and we get a, a designer, and then I talk a lot to the designer about it, and his contributions work on me, I think. I, then I see, I visualize through him, and it's not a very orderly, or uh, I've never been able to really uh, uh, do a preparation that I would say is uh, guarantees anything or makes me feel secure. I keep feeling less and less secure as the day approaches for rehearsal. I remember the first play I did, I said to, uh, I think it was Joe Layton, who was a friend of mine at that time, and I said, Joe, he, he had done Broadway shows and I hadn't, and I said, well, uh, Jesus, what do you do on the first day of rehearsal? Once you you finish the reading, you can't read forever. You have to get up, and get on that beat. And what? Uh, suppose you don't know whether you when you're blocking, whether you want them to sit here or stand there or do. You know, unless the script says he has to do it because of the events of the play. What do you? How do you do it? What do you do? And uh, Joe said, "Well, you've got to do something." You, know, you, you just you just have to do it. You can't. You can't. You, you move and then you go and do it. And I said, suppose it's wrong. You can, then you change it. So, <laughs> I said, I don't, I don't know. I, thanks a lot. And I thought about it. And I thought, I can't do that. I can't do that. If I don't know that he, if I can't feel that he moves here and I can't feel that he says that, I'm not going to tell them to do it. They're just arbitrarily. Uh -uh. Well, and, and I say, I would say to the cast, I don't know what you're doing. And I think that generally it all works out okay if you're pretty honest. I don't believe in, 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 in faking it. You know? Checking the actors and doing things. <laughs> no. like that over there. Well, I mean, unless you do it very well. <laughs> Have you had um, experiences working with um, big stars that were difficult? And how do you how do you handle that? Oh, I had yeah some real difficulties. <laughs> Do the best you can. Um, you to... Sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. I'm trying to think of a specific time. Uh, I think my worst experience was was with uh, Lucille Ball in the movie of May, which she was not really right for, which she wasn't, it was a big problem photographing her because her face was a mass of wrinkles. And every time uh, there was a close-up of her, uh, 
it was done through so much gauze that uh, it was terribly obvious and embarrassing. But she was uh, very rigid, very, very set in her ways, and was absolutely sure that she could be told nothing about comedy. And, and as she grew older, she, be, she lost the wonderful spontaneity that she had when she was younger. And, uh, and uh, so she was terribly rigid. And, and so she, she had blinders on her. And that was very difficult to do. We came to a real impasse. And I, but the studio would not make the picture without her. And uh, so that's always a bad situation where they don't care about the property and, and wouldn't do it unless they had a certain star to do it. And at one point they said, do you want to, have, do you want to go with, with Angela? And I said, oh yes, I would. And they went to the, their top, top, top brass and came back and said, no, if she doesn't do it, we don't do the picture. And I should have said, then I don't want to do it. Let's not do it. But I didn't. And how did you end up, how were you then able to work with her? Well, you know, you, I don't know. How do, you, how do you work with Germany after the war? <laughs> Hatefully, but you do. I have a two-part question. The first, I want to thank you for directing both name and accent events. They are part of what inspired me to go into theater. First part of the question is, you worked with the same choreographer on college shows. Really? And at point, just a director tell the choreographer, no, that's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and second part of the question is, what are your current activities and your future activities and are you interested in doing new musicals? Yes, I am. Uh, uh, first part of the question with the choreographer, you, I think, must be diplomatic. We had very good, we were on very good terms on a white night. She had her way of doing things, which I think is now sort of uh, old-fashioned. And I suppose in many ways I could be accused of being old-fashioned as well. Uh, but she was very good and very authoritative in what she did. And she handled large numbers of people beautifully. Uh, there were times when I'd say, think, no, I... You know, and I try to be diplomatic and say, put it in such a way that it was, that she understood, but at the same time didn't feel threatened. And, uh, you know, sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't. Most of the times it worked. I often, it's awfully hard with a, a choreographer. Because first of all, the director has so much on his plate anyway that getting into the choreography is, uh, other than in a broad sense, is uh, difficult. Uh, we compromise. 
what was the other part of the question? Oh, what I'm doing here. Yeah, I'm doing, I said I was, I'm doing uh, Bye Bye Birdie as a movie for uh, ABC television. And uh, we're shooting it in Vancouver. I had done a, a road tour with Tommy Toon and Anne Reinke. And it was a very successful tour. And uh, so now they're doing it as this television movie. Uh, Hallmark Hall of Fame. No. Uh, Anne is now uh, choreographing. And uh, I thought, well, she knows the show so well, and I, I do have great faith in her as a choreographer. I think she's going to be a good one. And uh, no, we're using Vanessa Williams as, as in the Cheetah Rivera part, and uh, Jason Alexander in the Dick Van Dyke part, and uh, George Went in the Paul Lynn part, Mr. McAfee, who sings Kids, and uh, Tyne Daly as uh, Jason Alexander's mother. They've written her, Strauss and have written her a song because the original mother never had a song. And that was because Kay Medford, who played the part, couldn't sing. <laughs> so there was a big comedy scene, which was very light for, that could easily be translated into a good kind of song. And they've written that. And then they wrote Vanessa Williams a new song which they just finished, which I think is rather good. I so thought she'll do less dancing <clears throat> and more singing. And uh, Conrad Birdie's being played by the fellow who did it on the road with us, who's now in uh, <clears throat> Beauty and the Beast. He's, his name is uh, Mark Kudish. He plays the suitor, the very vain suitor and he's very good. So we're doing it in Vancouver, which is a very pleasant place to work. And I, I hope it turns out. Here have an itch to do a real a serious drama. Yes, yes, I do. Uh, uh, I'd like to do something like, uh, uh, you know, a Chekhov. Certainly. Very much, but uh, haven't had the opportunity. Not much money in there. <laughs> I say that facetiously. I mean, I, you know, how many productions I've done on the uh, But I would like to, yeah. And I'm feeling that more and more as I get older, that the comedies that I'm offered certainly seem so shallow and so jokey. And I'm getting very tired of jokes, you know. I would like to get more flesh and bone. You know? uh, yeah. The lack of relish uh, that you describe to current actors and actors have absolutely to do with the parts uh, as written, or does it have a more detailed style? Ask a second, possibly related question. Uh, you mentioned before that incident of uh, the writer and producer coming to blows. 
And you said that the writer was uh, wrong to insist. Uh, was he wrong? Were you suggesting he was wrong because uh, the, uh, if the play was really right, everybody would have felt uh, more in tune with it? Is that why he was wrong to insist on it? I think he was a particularly stubborn fellow. I knew him quite well. I liked him, but he was very, very quick-tempered and stubborn and, and uh, defensive. And uh, I think if he had been more reasonable, he would have seen what Fonda's point was. But he closed his ears and he uh, criticized was sure that he was being uh, put upon, you know, and you were defensive. Uh, the other question had to do with acting style, the relative which I think it's I think it's both things. I think it's the fact that our, uh, that the styles have changed. We more and more and more we've demanded reality. And we've rejected uh, extreme of, of, of we've rejected stylization. Uh, and, and I think that actors feel this and are influenced by it. So that they're timid, and they rather than make a mistake. I have a son who's trying to be an actor, and he's not having much success. And I, I've seen, I've seen the little bits I've seen that he does, and the little times, few times I've seen him read something. He doesn't take a chance, and doesn't take enough of a chance. And I think that that's uh, important to do, to, especially when you're a young actor and have to bring something of yourself that is going to make someone remember you. Uh, you know, the most successful young actors now, I mean, have something special film. Uh, you might not agree with them, they might be, and they might in a very few years turn into uh, copies of themselves. But the initial punch in which they came on the scene was something of their own that was different from anybody else. And I think we all are a bit different from each other. And so I think that uh, if we take a chance to show that to people, that uh, it, it, it is arresting. And I, I think too much we try to be like everybody else. We try to act acceptably like the other actors who are successful and are afraid to be caught with our pants down. Yes. 
Uh, you spoke earlier about the relationship between the director and the actor sometimes being distant, like the father to the child. Yeah. And I was wondering, uh, when you go into rehearsal or in a performance on film, uh, what techniques do you use to develop the rapport with the actor? And does that change much uh, when you're working on theater and film? Well, I think, you know, in, in the theater, we were, the process of rehearsal, which is four or five weeks, or three weeks, uh, it, it, it gives you a chance to have a, some continuity to the relationship. You go step by step by step, and all through it. Whereas in, in film, you come in and you might have a rehearsal a couple of days, uh, and there's so little, often so little that you can rehearse because it's action. A lot of it is action, and not dialogue. Uh, then in the actual intense work of filming the scene, you gain a kind of relationship that's uh, over from the camera, but you know, from the camera to the actor. But then it's over. And they may sit out the next three weeks and they come back in three weeks and come back. It's not the same kind of continuity that you experience in the theater. But as far as I didn't mean arm's length as being uh, distant and unfriendly and so on. It's just a different kind of relationship that one has with one's father and one has with one's brother. You, uh, you're not as intimate, that's all. Do you think that's healthy? Oh, I don't think it's, uh, I think it's healthy, sure. I don't think it's either healthy or not. I think that uh, that's the way it is. I mean, actors, young actors come in and see me and they think often, oh, he's stern. Well, I'm not. But they bring with them all the baggage that they have about their fathers and older people and uh, automatically might have a hostile, certain amount of hostile feeling just because of the color of my hair or lack of it which uh, I think is natural in life. The age difference is very uh, with us all the time. Whereas the actor has somebody his own age and his own uh, background next to him. He'll feel natural more <clears throat> in him. That's what I'm talking about. But? Uh, you've had a very long, complicated, I'm sure, multi-layered relationship with Neil Simon. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the evolution of first working with him, then getting together with him, and so forth and so on, and the journey of the evolution working with him, what it was like. Uh, it was uh, an interesting relationship because I haven't really... Uh, I, I, I find it hard to really uh, analyze it. It was uh, never very close in a, in, a, in a 
friendly way as to people. It was close in the work. But then we went our separate ways. I mean, I... How did it start? Uh, it, it started over his recommending me to do this picture. Huh. Uh, and, and then we met on the set of the picture, and uh, then I did The Odd Couple after that. And then he asked me to do a show, a Plaza Suite. And then he said, no, I can't let you do it because Mike Nichols uh, says that I promised it to him. And so we always had that kind of relationship. And we, he's a very business-like person. He doesn't, there's no sentiment wasted. He does what he thinks is best for his play. There he is. And I have often been in a position when I didn't think that he, I was offered, that when he offered the play, that I didn't think that it was the best play, but if I didn't have another play to do, I thought, well, it's better than what I had or been offered. And uh, I did the best I could with it. I think that our, our going apart after eight or nine plays and three or four movies was uh, a kind of, uh, we had, uh, I, I was reading my notes over, and I tell you, it's interesting, it was, I found the same thing in my relationship with certain designers. I had a relationship with a designer who did many shows on me, and the time came, the next show came up, and I didn't want to use it. And I didn't know really why, except that I thought, well, he's sort of difficult, and, and uh, he's expensive, and he is very good, and he's done some wonderful work for me, but I think maybe I need a change. I need a breath of fresh air with somebody else. I think uh, a lot of marriages suffer from the same thing. Uh, they People drift apart. People get tired of people. And I think that's what happened with Simon and myself. I think he got, he felt that he wanted a shift of gears, something to revive him. Maybe he was unhappy with the way his work had been going and thought that by getting a new director. I, I don't know for sure, but I think people do grow stale with the, uh, I myself felt the need to get away, to get some fresh material that I wasn't so uh, uh, sure of. And I felt the kind of the zest had gone out of it. When, when the relationship was at its best artistically, what, um, how did the being working on play after play with the same writer um, affect the, the work? I mean, do you, do you have a sense of what yeah. I'm asking? Yeah. Is it, there a shorthand that's developed? Or do you, is there, does it become easier? Oh, I think so, yeah, I think so. No question. Uh, do you recommend that directors, you know, stick with a writer and then 
develop a relationship? Yeah, yeah, when you're having a good run, certainly. And, uh, <laughs> uh, then it gets off the track somehow, and, uh, and then doesn't stick with it. But, uh, oh, there's other advantages. Yes, there's shortcuts and, and, and language that you understand immediately. And, uh, uh, but that's not, you know, that I would, after, after one show, or two shows, that comes about. Uh, people need the break to breathe fresh air. And uh, sometimes you have to go elsewhere for you know. Good question. Yes, yes. Um, and that kind of musical is one of those great plays that you decided to rewrite once you finish and you first with the show's three books. I didn't hear you, I'm sorry. Oh, I said in the spring uh, plays with the Neil Simon. Yeah. The show's frozen. What did he do rewrites after he went into rehearsal? Oh, a lot of rewrites. Yes, he was, he, enjoyed, he did a lot of rewrites. And did he Always. Him, I mean, he was very collaborative and is open to your. Yes, and as a matter of fact, our relationship was very much the kind that was, uh, he would come into rehearsal and see something and see the actors weren't getting something, and he would almost never blame me for it. Almost never. I can't remember but one case where he ever blamed me for it, he, and I said, no, I can get this, I know what you mean, I'm going to get it, I'm going to, and he'd say, no, it's not there, believe me, it's not there. You're right. You you did everything you can. I I want to rewrite it. I think it should be rewritten. Uh, I was always one. I'm always sure that I could get something out of an actor or out of a script. I'm dogged, and I'm uh, I somehow it's admitting defeat if I don't get it. And and he has said to me, he has said to me many times, no, you. If you can't get it, it's not there, believe me. And then he'd rewrite it, and sometimes it would be better. Most of the time it would be, but sometimes he couldn't hit it either. What were you going to say? I was going to say on the last musical, I mean, because I read, you know, the report, I don't know if I talked to you or read what you said about it, and I thought I saw the musical, I thought, oh, a genius, so right. You know, all of your things that you wanted to do that I thought, mm. yeah, they didn't do it. I think, you know, I, I, I think honestly that was something that he didn't want to do in the first place. And I really didn't want to do in the first place. And that we all did it for the shameful reason of making money. And I say that quite baldly. I think that's not the right motivation for doing the show. I mean, that will follow if it works. Uh, but he, did, he, was, he didn't really want to do that stuff. He had to be convinced by his producer. And I was, I sort of was swept along. And I think that the, uh, the composer was also reluctant to do it, for whatever reason. Uh, 
he was very unsure of himself at the time. And the result was that we all turned out rather bad work, and we all sweated, grunted, and strained, and, and, and got very little for it. And it just wouldn't, like a cake that wouldn't rise in the end. Time for one more question. No, it's the same in film. I mean, I think it, in, in film, the the director has more power than in, than in the theater because the writer is very much involved with the way it looks, uh, costumes, and every other uh, uh, part of it, um, the, the sound, etc., etc. Whereas in, in film, he's not. He's pushed aside, told to go home early. And the, 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 the studio has a lot of control. But they're always, you're going to see them. I mean, they're always at the, they, they have their own showings of the Russians, the dailies. And then word comes down. They liked them, they didn't like them. That's about all the time we have. We have one more. Oh, I just wondered, um, so long now we see in the credits, casting director. Mm. I wonder what indication that has for the director. I think more. Use casting director? Uh -huh. Do you use casting director? Oh, yes. I mean, today it's a, it's a thing everybody uses. Uh, I think too often directors are. <clears throat> uninformed about actors. They don't see enough. They don't go around enough themselves. I think they should do that rather than the casting director. But the business has changed and there are so many more things to see now that one person can hardly, uh, I mean, you'd never get anything done if you, you could go out and see shows and movies and to know everybody it's very difficult. So the casting deserve, the director deserves some credit and, and some, uh, there's a job for him to do, but I think that the director should keep, should keep control more than they do over uh, that. And it's out of laziness sometimes that the casting director finds his work out of director. In the musical, it's a disadvantage to have the, the uh, book and music and lyrics all written by one person. I think so. I think uh, music and lyrics. Uh, I, I think that when one takes on the book, I worked with Bob Merrill on a show where he did everything, and uh, it suffered greatly. It would give a continuity, though. Yes, but if they work properly together for a long enough period of time, they'll get that continuity with the guidance of a director and a producer who are involved. I mean, there are no rules. 
That's my other priest, my other uh, uh, slogan. I was, again, it's Julie Stein who said this. I went to see uh, a show called Tango Argentina. A little quiz, see if I tell you this. And uh, I don't know if any of you remember, it was a recent, uh, four, four or five years ago, maybe more. And uh, it, it got very good reviews, but it, of course, it was a, uh, there were a bunch of middle-aged uh, Argentine, Brazilian uh, working people who danced, uh, almost had a, a club where they danced the tango. And they were all marvelous dancers, but they were all heavy, middle-aged working people. They weren't performers, they weren't uh, professional dancers, but they were marvelous. And uh, they got up and the whole evening was them doing these numbers with an orchestra on stage. And their music was very exciting. And uh, uh, at the end of the first act, the curtain came down and Julie rushed up the aisle. And I was in the aisle seat and I said, I grabbed out for him and said, Julie, hi. He turned on me and said, you see, there are no rules. <laughs> <laughs> And on that note, I think we should wind up. There are no rules. Thank Again, this is Hope Clark, and thank you for listening to Masters of the Stage. This program was made possible by support from the Society of Stage Directors and Choreographers the National Labor Union celebrating five decades representing the needs and aspirations of its members. Visit us on the web at www.ssdc.org. This online series is presented in collaboration with the American Theatre Wing, dedicated to illuminating how theatre is made through the words of the people who make theatre. Visit them online at American Theatre Wing dot org